Amen. You may be seated. So good morning. My name is Robert, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are in an Advent season. That's why we see the Advent wreath. We'll uh, be lighting those candles in ever-increasing order as we go through, as was uh, just explained. And I think Judges is a, a great Advent book because there's a lot of darkness, and it's almost like an extended Advent, right? It's, they keep going through this cycle where Israel disobeys, and then they're disciplined, and then they're in distress. They cry out in their distress, and they get a deliverer, and then they have peace, but then they disobey again. And it's almost like the, the candle is lit for the, you know, the first Advent candle, and then <laughs> blow it out, you know, and, and then it's dark again. And it's like, oh, and there's another deliverer, and there's a little bit of light and a little bit of hope, and <laughs> blow it out again, right? And we just, we just keep going through this cycle over and over and over again. And it keeps spiraling down with each judge. Like the people get worse and the judges get worse all the way down to Samson. He's number 12 of the judges. And he really is the worst of the worst. Uh, he, his, his adult story opens up with him wanting to marry a Philistine woman, which is against the Mosaic law. He disobeys, dishonors his parents. He breaks now in this story, we hear him breaking all three of his uh, parts of his Nazarite vow. We'll talk more about what that means um, in the part of this sermon. He brutally murders people. He steals from people. He destroys personal property. And somehow God, through all that carnage, sovereignly moves forward his mission. And we'll, we'll see this. We've seen this all throughout Samson's story. We're going to see this today. We're going to see it um, Definitely next week as, as God continues to uh, accomplish the things that He wants to accomplish. Um, we see in Judges 16 kind of the adult Samson, right? He's been a, a judge for 20 years, so let's say he's at least around 40. We might think he, he would have grown up a little bit, but he hasn't, right? He goes to Gaza, which is the Philistine capital. So he's going right into the heart of, of enemy territory. It's almost like he's bored and he needs a rush, right? He needs to risk. So he just, he just walks in. Everybody knows who he is, just dares them to attack him, finds a prostitute there in the town, has a night with her, hears that the Philistines are, are now seeing an opportunity maybe to take Samson out. They're encircling him. They're waiting for him to come out the next morning. And then he just walks out of the city, literally taking the gate of the city, pulling it out of the ground and just walking out with it. Again, daring the Philistines to attack him. But one of the things that has also been consistent in terms of his uh, reckless life is that he's still looking for the girl of his dreams. And he thinks he's finally found her in Delilah. So... Judges 16. Hopefully you've picked up the Bibles off the floor there, um, or you've opened up your phone. Judges 16, verse 4. After this, he, Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, if you've been with us in the Samson story, this should sound very familiar. When he was first 
trying to get married to a Philistine woman early in his story, and he he'd made this little wager that with the, some of his Philistine buddies that he had just made, and, and it, it, it required him uh, to give them a riddle, and then they were supposed to guess the riddle, and so his Philistine um, bride-to-be was threatened in order to get the information about the riddle so that the Philistines could win the wager. And they threatened her life. Like they said, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your parents if you don't tell us. And they got the secret out of her. Now, this is not quite as bad as that. This is not threatening, although there's probably a little bit of fear and intimidation. These are the lords of the Philistines. These aren't just some chumps that were, you know, the, the bridal party of Samson. These are the, the leaders of the Philistines. And so they come to her with a bribe. They're a little more sophisticated in their manipulation, right? But there's probably a little bit of fear and intimidation as well. So, will true love sell Samson out? Verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. I guess true love has its price. She asked him point blank, What's your strength? And how could it be undermined? It's a bold-faced request. This should ring a bell for Samson, right? I know it was 20 years before, okay, but that was some really, really hurtful stuff that happened to him back in that, in that experience 20 years before. It's it sort of, it, it must ring a bell because he cleverly tests her as clever as Samson can be. Verse 7 Samson says to her, if, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. He must be a heavy sleeper, too. I, yeah. Now she'd been lying in ambush, in, uh, now she had men lying in ambush in her inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. And so the secret of his strength was not known. Okay, so truth comes out. She can't be trusted. It is time to block her number. It is time to unfriend her on all social media platforms. Perhaps time to get a new email, right? But she goes on the attack. She doesn't let Samson have any, any time to even, even have a breath right? Verse 10, Delilah says to Samson, behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. <laughs> Great technique of manipulation, right? Someone who is manipulating someone and they're getting found out, and the technique is you just go on the offensive. You pick on something they've done wrong or they might perceive they've done wrong, and you just go for the throat, and this is what she does. She starts whining to him about how he has lied to her. But why is he even still listening to her? Why is he even in a conversation with her, right? Block her number, Samson. But there's more going on here than good Samson, bad Delilah, right? That's not what's going on. This is about sex. This is about uh, how, whatever admiration he feels, maybe some kind of companionship, but it's toxic. It is a toxic relationship. And how many times have I seen this as a pastor? 
people in these kinds of toxic relationships, some of which are professing to be Christ's followers. But because of the attachment, sometimes that's sexual, it's always emotional. There's just this attachment to this human being that it's sabotaging their lives, sabotaging their spiritual lives. And we see this here in, in Samson's life as well. This is some of you this morning. No doubt. It's some of you this morning. You, you're in this kind of uh, exploitive relationship. Right? I, this, this writer... Um, Larry Crabb, he's an, a counselor and author, and he talks about a tick-on-a-dog relationship where one of the persons in the relationship is just sucking the life out of you. And he says, in some relationships, it's two ticks and no dog. And that's what we have here in Samson and Delilah. Two ticks and no dog. They're sucking the life out of each other, exploiting each other. But in the midst of all that toxicity, that there's some kind of companionship and... Uh, intimacy, and they're just unwilling to, to, to break that because of the faux relationship that they are at least experiencing. So he plays right along. Verse 11, he says to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Okay, now we know. Block her number, right? This is, I mean, two tests. She's failed both tests. She goes on the offensive. Verse 13, Delilah says to Samson, Until now, you've mocked me. You've told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head, wove them into the web. She made them tight with a pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and he pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. She continues to prove herself untrustworthy, right? She goes on the attack again before Samson can even draw a breath. She says to him, how can you say I love you with your heart when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. This girl is good in a really bad way, right? She attacks him for lying. She uses emotions and she will not let up. She just keeps coming at him, right? And why is she doing this? Remember, for money. She's doing this for money this whole time. Again, the, the exploitation going on between these two is, is pretty troubling. So she knows now. She's got, she's got the intel, verse 18. Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She's getting paid first, right? See that? See that? 
She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That is the lowest moment in this Samson story. His, his strength has left him, but what was the secret of his strength? The secret of his strength was God, that he was in relationship with God. The Philistines, they're thinking like pagans. They're thinking about magic. They know it's supernatural. Okay, so this is why they're trying to figure out the secret to his strength. Like no human being could do what he does. It has to be some sort of a divine power. They're trying to figure it out. How to break the spell or, or break the mojo. Like, what is it about this guy and how can we break it? There's got to be some kind of a magical way to do that. And this is how Delilah's thinking as well. She's trying to figure out, what, what are we going to do? We've got to give you some kind of special tea or there's got to be some way that we're going to break the spell and you're going to become weak. And he has broken almost all of his Nazarite Vow, but, but the reason that the Nazarite vow is, is important is that a vow is what brings you into a covenant with God. And, and a covenant is merely an agreement between God and a human being. And there's terms of that covenant. And for his covenant as a Nazarite, it was don't drink alcohol, don't touch dead stuff, and don't cut your hair. And so he is in this covenant with God, which is why he has this strength. Remember back when the angel announced to his mother, uh, Behold, this is from Judges 13, You shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Notice that God is the one who initiates the covenant. Samson's a zygote. right? He, he's at conception. He's in covenant with God. God's initiating this covenant. It is, it is by the grace of God. And when Samson's in covenant, in relationship with God, he's untouchable. A lion jumps out at him. He tears the lion to bits. He, he wants to, to make good on his wager, and he needs 30 pairs of clothing. He goes and kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes to pay the wager. No one touches him. He goes against the entire Philistine army, picks up the jawbone of a donkey, and kills a thousand of them. That's, that's Samson in covenant. Samson in the power of, of God, right? And, and beginning of 16, he's picking up city gates and just walking out with them. But outside of covenant, when covenant is broken, he's nothing but a washed-up muscle head. I'm sure he can bench press a few pounds. But he's old news, man. He, he, he is not untouchable. In fact, he's incredibly vulnerable. And we see him so vulnerable in this moment. His eyes are gouged out. He can't even see. He's going to be led by his hands to, to, to Gaza where they tie him up. It was never about Samson trying really hard. But he never got that. He never understood that. Even what he says in verse 20, did you catch that? I will go out as at other times, and I will shake myself free. Really? 
all that time. He, he thought it was him, muscle boy. No. It was because the, God was with him. And in this moment, God is not with him. The Lord had left him, the writer of Judges tells us. This whole time, God had been with him. Judges 14, 6. Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces. God was with him. Judges 14, 19. Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 men. The Lord was with him. Judges 15. Came to Lehi. The Philistines came shouting to meet him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax. And he killed a thousand men. The reason he was able to do that is because the Lord was with him. He was inside the covenant. Now he's outside the covenant, right? This is a mirror for Israel to look into. What does it look like to be in the covenant and to be out of the covenant? And they get to see in Samson's life what it looks like to be in covenant and out of covenant because Israel is acting the same way. Their covenant was initiated by grace as well. God rescued them out of Egypt. Did they do anything to get themselves out of Egypt? No. God sustains them in the desert with, with manna and quail and water, and their clothes don't wear out, right? Like, like is that something they did? No, it's by grace. God brings them into the promised land against these giants and walled cities and trade militaries, and they take over the place and they establish a nation. Was that anything Israel did? No, it was by grace. And now what are they doing? Whoring around with other gods, as they look into Samson's life, they see their own story, that they too were brought into a covenant relationship with God by grace. So they, they get to see, what's, what's it like in the covenant of God? What's it like outside the covenant of God? And, and Samson doesn't understand this, and Israel doesn't understand this. I mean, think about this. Samson writes this song back in Judges 15. I don't think it was on the top 40, but uh, after he's killed a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey... He writes this song, with the jawbone of a donkey, I don't know what the tune was, of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, and the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Really? You, Samson? Big boy, you did that? You picked up the jawbone of a donkey, and you alone killed a thousand Philistines? No, it was always by grace. It was always by grace. Samson had been chosen to be in a special relationship with God from conception. And because of that grace, he was able to do those things. But he, he didn't understand that. He didn't understand that. As opposed to like King David, right? King David gets this. He's not perfect. He makes some, some big mistakes. But he understands that he's in covenant with God. And that covenant is by Grace. Listen then to, to one of David's psalms, Psalm 27, as he talks about some of his military exploits. Psalm 27, 16, the king, he's talking about himself, right? King David. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He's, for our heart is glad in Him. 
because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. That's David talking about his, his victories, right? Does, is he saying he doesn't have an army? No, he has an army. Is he saying he doesn't have any strength? There's no warriors? No, he had mighty men, right? He does have strength. Is he saying he doesn't have any war horses? No, he, he does. But, but, but he's saying that's not ultimately where these victories have come from. These victories have ultimately come from the power of God that's been given to me because I'm in covenant. He uses this phrase, steadfast love, which the ESV, whenever the ESV is using steadfast love in the Old Testament, it's translating a Hebrew word known as hesed. And it's a special word for the covenant love of God, the unconditional, immovable, right, unrelenting love of God for His people. So when David comes off the battlefield and they've had a victory, he, he know, that, that wasn't because I had a great strategy. Now, did he make a strategy? Yeah, he made a strategy. Did he tell his men what to do? Yeah, he made Totally. But he knows ultimately that comes from grace. That comes from this hesed, this covenant love and mercy that God has given him and the people of God. So Samson has become an object lesson for Israel. Israel, that's what it looks like in the covenant. Israel, this is what it looks like outside the covenant. It's an object lesson for us as well. So bring some questions, okay? Is, is there a covenant for me? Right? We're not in ancient Israel in the Old Testament? Like, well, what does that mean for me? Is this like a nice story? I mean, what, what is, it? Is, is it? Is there a covenant for me? And then we want to answer, well, if there is, how can I get inside that covenant? Right? So is, is there a covenant for me? How can I get inside? And then how do I live once I'm inside the covenant? Those three things that we're going to talk about as application of this. Is there a covenant for me? Yes. Yes. All Old Testament covenants, whether it be covenant with Israel, covenant with, covenant with David, covenant with the Nazarite, all, all those covenants are pointing forward to a true and better covenant in Jesus Christ. Every covenant. Right? And there's lots of covenants in the Old Testament. Covenant with Abraham, covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah. There's tons of covenants, right? But they're a thread that's pointing forward to a true and better covenant, an agreement between God and human beings. And that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the places he talks about that is when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. And so we see Jesus with his disciples. Uh, every time we come to this table, we're reminded of this, right? Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples, he took bread. He, when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. There it is, new covenant in my blood. Jesus is letting the disciples know he's initiating a true and better covenant. Now, there's continuity between the old covenants and the new covenants, but, but he's saying this is, this is where we've been working towards. This is where God in his mission, his redemptive story, has been working for this covenant that, that Christ initiates. And how does he initiate it? With his death on the cross. Why does he have to die on the cross? So that sinners like you and me can be forgiven and brought into the covenant with God. And so th this is how a, a new covenant, a covenant that includes not just the nation of Israel, but includes all humanity, right, that can be brought into that 
covenant. And we're commemorating that covenant when we take this bread and this cup. This, this meal communicates a relationship between us and God. In the ancient world, and I've said this many times, but I, th- I think it's, it's necessary to understand. When you ate a meal with someone in the ancient world, you were saying, I accept you. And when we eat this together, we're saying, we've been accepted by God. We who were sinners and separate from a holy God now can be in relationship with God because we've been forgiven through the grace that's been given to us at the cross of Christ. We're also saying that we are are accepting one another, that we're giving and receiving forgiveness with each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus. So it's not just a covenant with me and Jesus, it's a covenant with me and Jesus and all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, all the other covenants in the Old Testament are pointing forward to this true and better covenant. Now, how do I get in this thing, right? How do I get in the covenant? Because all covenants have terms. How you get in it is you get chosen to be in it, just like Samson. How did Samson get in his covenant? Did he do something? No, he didn't. He didn't. He was chosen before he was born. That's true of you. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because you've been chosen by God, by the grace of God. It's throughout Scripture, but here's one of the places, uh, Ephesians 1, verses 3. This is on the screen here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. That's, that's great, right? That's good news. Why would you do that, God? Is that because I'm really cool? I'm really amazing? Or, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Do you hear what Paul's doing there? He's celebrating the salvation of of those that have been saved and been gathered into the church. And he's saying, why did that happen? Because God had a plan before the foundation of the earth, a a thing that he predestined to to, to forgive and to save and to gather those people into community, a worshiping community that are giving glorious praises to God. It's the ultimate expression of grace. When we say saved by grace, that's how much grace we've been given. If you're a follower of Jesus, he has given you this grace to be one of his children. Now, you may be saying, well, wait a minute. I thought I had to receive it by faith and believe. and Absolutely. But what I'm saying is you could not receive it by faith had not God intervened by grace in your life. You can't. You can't. You say, well, I'm pretty smart. You know, like, I can figure stuff out. I'm sorry. People that become Christians, they don't become Christians merely because they have an intellect or... It, it, it is by grace, grace alone. It is not a 50-50 thing. And God kind of comes 50% towards you, and then you come 50%. That is not what we read in Scripture. It is by grace alone. So I know there's mystery there, right? Like, on one hand, I'm thinking, I'm responding, I, I, I'm, I'm committing as an act of my will to Christ as Lord, on the other hand, you're saying it's by grace, it's supernatural. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know there's some mystery there. You, you see the tension of this in many places in the Gospels, uh, and throughout Scripture, really. But here's one. Here's one. I'll give you one example. John 1, 
verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. So I receive him, then I get to become a child of God. But then he goes, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see that mystery there? He's saying you could never receive, you could have never believed. Were you not regenerated, reborn by the Spirit of God? Now, Christians debate this throughout 2,000 years, right? Is everyone chosen? And then some say yes, some say no. Or are some chosen, some not chosen. And the Christian tent is big enough for both of those folks. But what I believe the Bible is teaching us is some are chosen, some are not. And I know there's mystery there and there's a lot of questions that come up and those questions are valid in wrestling through that, talking through that. So I totally, I totally get it. But, but here, what, what's in this doctrine, what we might call the doctrine of election, right? If, if you believe the only reason that you could have ever come to Jesus is because of his gracious intervention into your life, it, it will set you free. If you think it's a 50-50 thing, that's going to mess with you. It's going to mess with your mind because you're going to wake up in the morning and go, maybe I'm not holding up my 50% of the bargain. Maybe I'm not saved today. Yeah, I was saved yesterday, but today I'm not. It'll mess you up. But if you believe you're in Christ because of what God has done before the foundation of the, of the world, where He has brought you into a covenant, it, it will set you free. You are not any different than Samson. You're not any different than Israel. Those are two cases in point, are you not? Right? I mean, they, they didn't deserve anything. And yet God sovereignly chooses them and brings them into covenant. So how do we live in that covenant? In a word, and I'm going to talk more about this next week, but in a word, we live in humility. We live in humility. We want to have a heart like David, not like Samson. I think Samson would say, I made that good grade. I landed that job. My strength, my health is mine. I did this. Right? Even though all along that, that was all grace. And honestly, this is true of Christian and non-Christian alike. Whether a non-Christian knows it, the fact that they're breathing air is grace created by God. The very God they're saying doesn't exist or they don't worship or whatever. I get it. But, but they're being sustained by common grace. And then as Christians, we understand we have saving grace. Not only common grace that we get to breathe air, but saving grace that we're now in relationship with God and that's going to last forever. Right? And so that, that should humble us. We ought to be the ones saying, no, it, it, it wasn't ultimately me who made that grade, landed that job built that friendship, had that success, was able to bear up under that struggle, challenge. Nor should we even say, it was me that saved me by making a choice to follow Jesus. That ultimately it was God, by His grace, that initiated with me such that I could see the gospel. And again, I'm not saying God's like, okay, you're elect and you're chosen, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coerce you what he does is he gives you eyes that can see the gospel. Before that, you can't even see the gospel as a, as a sinner. You can't see it. And then when you see it, you can't 
help but respond in faith because you see how good it is. Sometimes this is called irresistible grace, right? And once that grace has given you those eyes to see the goodness of the gospel, you go, yes, I want that. And yes, then as an act of your will and in your brain, and you respond to it. But, but no, and I think most of us, when we think about it, if we're a Christian, we think about our conversion, it felt like it was all us going in, but then once we, we receive Christ and we look back and we go, ooh, that was all God. That was all God. That was grace alone that brought me into covenant with a good God. We celebrate that covenant every time we come to this table. It's partly why I love doing this every week. I mean, I think Jesus has uh, told his church to do this. But we think about this meal that reminds us of, of the covenant that we're in with God. And we think about, you know, the, the words of institution, which when you read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is explaining, here at Corinthian church, here's how you should do the Lord's Supper. So this is how we kind of know that this is what the early church did. And the, those words of institution that, that the Apostle Paul starts off with is, is like, on the night on which Jesus is betrayed. If there's ever a time, right, when Jesus is like, you know what, I'm done with you. I mean, I tried to come 90% to you, and I, need, I just need you to come 10%. I mean, come on. Come on, Peter. Come on, Judas. What is your problem? Just 10%. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to those blind sinners, and he says, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And God comes 100% to the sinner. That's how desperate they were that night. That's how desperate we are as well. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant. He's letting them know that all other covenants that they've ever known, they've all been pointing to this true and better covenant that he's about to institute with his death. And why does he need to, to die? He says, this new covenant, right? This blood poured out, why? For the sins, forgive sins. Like sinner, you don't have a, a, a chance unless God comes 100% to you and me. And so he did that that night to institute this Lord's Supper. And then that next day, he died on the cross so that he could institute that new covenant. So this is part of what we celebrate in this meal, is having been invited in by grace, through faith, into this new covenant. Both our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. And we, we celebrate that it's by grace. So when you come up here, I'm always encouraging you to just hold out your hand and just receive it. It's, it's a reenactment of, of your conversion. If you became a Christian, all you brought to, the, to, the, to your salvation was your sin. That's all you brought. And then God met you 100% of the way, and He gave you grace. And every time we come up here, we're reenacting that. And it's humbling, isn't it? It should be. That's how we should be thinking about it. And as we live this life in covenant, we're continually needing 100% grace from God. We could never do this except by grace through faith. And so we, we, we come forward and we take the bread and we take the cup. We receive this just like we received Christ when we first came into the covenant by faith. And so you may be here this morning and, and you're hearing this and maybe you've heard enough about 
what Christ has done. Maybe you've done some reading, talked to friends, heard sermons, but you know this morning, it's, it's your morning to receive by faith. Your eyes have, have, have come open and you're like, yes, I want this. And I would encourage you to do that. And then let someone know that that's, that's occurred, that you received Christ by faith this morning for the first time. And, and talk to me or talk to a friend, talk to somebody, tell, tell somebody, this, this is what's happened. For the rest of us who are Christ's followers, this, this is an opportunity to be reminded of the grace of God, that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And, and that, I don't know, it, it can set you free, knowing that this is what your salvation is, is standing on, not that you came 50-50 with God. And so when you come up to receive this, be reminded of His grace toward you. So let's pray.